As we come close to Christmas, when many plan to prepare for a festival season and think of taking a break, for a lot of people, Christmas brings financial challenges and no doubt homelessness. According to recent research carried out by Shelter, a homelessness charity, there are over 271 people recorded as homeless and just over 123 of them are children in England. This figure then raises the question, what is homelessness? Can being homeless impact your prospect of getting a new home? Where does financial help uh, come into play to come out of homelessness? Can the welfare state fully support a homeless person? How can a homeless person's debts impact getting into your new home? To answer some of these questions on this Debt Talk podcast with me, Repondre, as your host, I have expert panellists who are experts in welfare rights and no doubt from the debt sector. I'm also expecting the panellists to provide Debt Talk listeners with top tips for those who may find themselves sleeping rough or homeless. So, in this pod- podcast, I have Devan Ghalani, Director of Policy and Practice, who also created a better of calculator, uh, which navigates uh, uh, what financial support is available for those who are seeking to maximize income. And finally, Amy Taylor, this advisor and chair of Greater Manchester Money Advice Group. Amy also advises social and housing tenants to keep their home through her advice work. For those who are listening to that talk and want to share your experience or want to listen to a subject, send me an email, ripon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com or on Twitter, yourdoctordebt. So before we delve into with Amy, let me ask um, uh, Devon Ghalani. Devon, from your understanding of homelessness, what is actually homelessness and how extreme is homelessness in the UK? Well, I guess it's on a, on a spectrum. You've got people who are who are sleeping rough, um, literally don't have a roof over their heads. Um, and then you've got a huge amount of hidden homelessness. Um, so over 100,000 households in temporary accommodation today. Um, and that can be, you know, families with children. Um, it could be single people, um, but not really having any fixed place to live, not knowing how long they're going to be there for. And then you've got general housing insecurity. So people who are living in, you know, perhaps rented accommodation, but are very concerned about rent rises or, or what's going to come next around the corner. Maybe they're in debt to others today and uh, kind of taking money out of their, you know, what should be going toward their day-to-day expenses, getting by food, heating, water, others in order to pay for their rent. And while they're not homeless, they're certainly missing out on um, support that they might need because just the cost of housing is so high, the availability of housing or decent housing is so poor um, across the UK right now. Unless you've got unless you've got a home, of course, which um, I think I think that's one of the biggest policy divides we're seeing at the moment is people who have a home, been lucky enough, lucky enough to buy a home, um, particularly if you were able to do so much earlier, are doing well. It's very hard for them not to do well in some respects. Um, and I appreciate that's not everyone, but in in general terms. Whereas if you're renting um, on a low income, it can be very, very difficult. Um, so, yeah, that's it's it's a huge spectrum. It's a very complex area in and of itself, particularly you know, when you wrap up 
benefit eligibility and wider debt pressures into it, it becomes a very complex picture for people to manage. I mean, you spent years, you spent years navigating the benefit system in your current role as director and also as universal credit and welfare specialist. Do you genuinely think that the current benefit system is is fit for purpose and can support alleviating uh, the trouble that many homelessness people are facing? So I, I guess there are two ways of thinking about the benefit system. One is the level of support it pr- provides to people and asking whether or not that's sufficient. And the second one is accessing that support and how the system treats you as you try to access it. And I'd say, you know, today the current social security system is, is deficient on both counts, really. Um, so I started, my interest in this space came about in 2007, uh, after I was uh, let go from a company I was working for at the time and had to claim benefits myself. So that was over 15 years ago, uh, dealing with the legacy benefit system. I remember going to the job centre, uh, claiming job seekers allowance. Uh, I was renting in London at the time, but no one at the time told me about housing benefit. So this relationship between benefits and housing, and in my case, it really wasn't clear. Um, but actually, in lots of people's place, cases, it isn't really clear. Right? Benefits are thought of in their own silos. Job seekers allowance is one thing to administer. Housing benefit is another thing to administer. Um, and in some respects, universal credit should try and bring some of that together. I think it maybe has helped a bit i don't know a lot of people disagree i don't think it's helped enough you know i don't think people work coaches that they might be thinking about you know the administrative side of that they're not really thinking about the quality of housing any housing pressures any wider debt issues uh, and then the second point is is the amount of housing support people are getting sufficient and in 2000 well before april 2013 the level of housing support you could get through the benefit system would cover about half of all homes in an area. Um, that was cut to cover only a third of all homes in an area. You'd think that would save a huge amount, but actually it doesn't save as much as you might think. So that 40% fall in the availability of homes you could afford uh, only saved about 6% of the of the housing budget because you know rents aren't linear. They all kind of bunch up around a, around a median. Um, and you know, the situation hasn't gone much better since because other benefits have been frozen. That means other income uh, rents have gone up astronomically, which means that other income you might have has been has had to be has had to go toward your housing if you want to keep a roof over your head. And all of that's increased the pressures. And we work a lot with we work with over 80 local authorities across the country. And often it's the housing teams that bring in support, the, the type of support we offer around income maximization or identifying households that are struggling financially early, because ultimately the, the failures to act, the failures to be proactive and help those residents today means they're lo- much more likely to end up homeless in the future. But when you do find yourself in a vulnerable situation such as homelessness, so where does Department of Work and Pensions and other stakeholders play a part? I mean, uh, I guess if I look at it positively, you can sometimes have kind of specific housing or, or homelessness teams based in job centres. Um, that's far too infrequent, I would say, particularly given the scale, you know, the problem is growing in scale. Um, I, I, generally, I don't think that coordination there are efforts to kind of have that coordination in place. And, and often we talk about those or, or you see examples of those positive cases. I think they're interesting cases just because it should probably be more standard practice. Um, I think you're helping people access the financial support they need to pay for their housing or whatever's available through the benefit system. But there's not really 
extra support there through the job centre itself if that housing support is insufficient or if the housing quality is poor that then goes to um, you might then need to go to the local authority to apply for discretionary housing payments or other discretionary support so it's an example of how the benefit system itself is fragmented and if you want to take action against your landlord that's a whole another stream of um, challenge you have to go through to be able to do that because it really isn't straightforward and the system probably favours landlords uh, over tenants the, you know the current system favors landlords over tenants i would i spoke to a civil servant at the national energy conference last week um and he incidentally stated that you were behind the creation of universal credit not necessarily ian duncan smith is that right well i worked on it at the center for social justice so i guess you know after being on benefits myself i started to do my own research in why the system is so fragmented after speaking to a lot of people in and around Westminster, they all pointed me toward the Centre for Social Justice and I joined their team as they were working on a report called Dynamic Benefits, which if you remember when Universal Credit was first introduced, it was this, you know, people recognised the problems that the current benefit system or the legacy benefit system today put in front of people. The fact that it was fragmented, you had to apply many times, you had these range different departments administering a whole range of benefits, each of which had their own rules. And this Universal Credit was an effort to kind of bring all of that together um so you only had to apply in one place to access all of that support and you'd always be better off in work those are the principles yeah so i i worked on i worked on that when it was a, a policy idea and the reason i run policy and practice is partly to see what happens to a to policy um as it turns into practice and it's it's it can be challenging you have been campaigning around billions of pounds uh that are not claimed tell us more about it and what do you mean by billions unclaimed? Yeah, so a report we wrote in April of this year, um, which actually featured on the front page of The Guardian. It's always nice when you get a big splash around these things when you've been working very hard on a policy report. Um, identified the total amount of unclaimed benefits and other rights-based supports, such as social tariffs, um, like nationally administered benefits, locally administered benefits, and those administered by regulated entities, at £19 billion. That's quite a big uplift on what previous estimates were. And I think that's because the system itself has become quite a bit more fragmented. Um, there's other types of support schemes that popped up in response to the cost of living. And that's why we felt the report was necessary. Because it's very hard if you're on the front line to keep tabs of all of the different types of support you might, you know, your your the people who are trying to support might be able to access where to go to access that. Um, and we bring all of that together in, um, in the Better Off Calculator, which people can access through gov.uk or advisors can can license by contacting us. Um, but yeah, that 19 billion pounds is a, you know, to me, it, it, it's, it's a huge number, isn't it? And, and that's every year. And it's worth mentioning that it excludes, from that number, we exclude discretionary support. So things like discretionary housing payments and the household support fund. And it also excludes disability benefits because they're not rights-based. You have to go through a disability assessment. So we couldn't say for certain whether or not, just because you felt you were disabled, whether or not you'd be able to access that support or not. But we reckon if you add those two together, you're getting above £23 billion, £24 billion worth of unclaimed support each year. You've briefly talked about Better Off Calculator. Um, what's the underlying purpose behind it? Well, initially I built it you know, as a hobby, um, back in 2012, I had to explain universal credit to people. Um, and I could see their eyes glaze over as I was talking to them. Um, they didn't want to understand the policy concept behind it. They wanted to know what it meant for them or their employees or their 
you know the, the people that are trying to support so over a long weekend in in i think around april 2012 um i built it in, a, in a, as an online website and by the end of the month i had 20,000 people it's called the universal credit calculator originally um by the end of the month i had 20,000 people using it i was dealing with blog inquiries till 2 a.m um, and lots of people wanted me to develop it further and i think the benefit calculators that were available at the time online you basically had to be an expert in social security to be able to use them they weren't very google-esque uh, very kind of they weren't kind of brought up to date uh, to today's web standards so luckily i got a small grant from unlimited um hired a developer to build it properly um and I haven't really looked back so i was i left my role at the center for social justice and i saw there's a bigger gap in helping people to navigate the social security system uh, and communicate what changes in policy would mean for them through this software than um than there was in uh trying to shepherd little bits of legislation through partly because you know a lot of that had already gone through um around universal credit by that point so um we still campaign on, on a policy level but i think what gets us out of bed is helping people you know access the support that they need and it makes a real tangible difference to their lives we reckon we help people access over a billion pounds worth of support each year when you look at the numbers that that use it today I mean, the current Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, is considering a big benefit squeeze. What does that mean for people like, I suppose, many people who might be facing homelessness and who are vulnerable in our communities? I mean, well, we've had the we've had the awesome statement now. Um, I think it was a brief respite in the end. I think there was a lot of concern around what it might put forward, but I think we avoided the worst of it. There's an increase in the local housing allowance. There's an increase in the national living wage. Um, benefits have been uprated in line with inflation. I don't think it goes far enough, partly because the, of the last decade of cuts, freezes and squeezes on people's incomes. So benefits are worth around seven and a half, eight percent less in real terms than they were 10 years ago. So we have to make up for that shortfall. And this budget didn't do that. Uh, it probably didn't squeeze them too much further, which I guess is the respite that I was talking about. Um yeah, and I think we need to go. We need to go further because you know, in, while it matched general inflation, people on lower incomes face higher. You know, we've seen food inflation at higher levels than other types of inflation this year, and you can't get away from having to buy food. So, um, I think, yeah, I think it was. You know, the autumn statement was better than expected, but really, we need a society that's willing to invest in social security. Uh, we need to make the arguments for it. Um, and I thought the pandemic created an opportunity for that, but I'm not sure that it's been taken yet. I mean, moving forward, really, what changes do you want to see to help homeless and rough sleepers to ease the pressure for them? Um, easier to access support, um, more speciality, specialisms around that. Uh, that's easier to access either within job centre or, or local authority settings. Um, fundamentally, I think what we need is more homes um, because, as I mentioned, it's not just rough sleepers. It's a lot of people in temporary accommodation who are really struggling to find accommodation that they can afford. Um, maybe fundamentally, if we're getting a bigger picture about this, a rebalancing uh, toward tenants, um, the, you know, the rights of tenants. Um, and, you know, I've been running this organization policy and practice for 10 years and, and it's been reasonably successful. I like to think we're making quite a big 
impact and we support more and more local authorities. But I'd say in that time, growing a successful organization, um, the biggest difference in my time since since I started it has been buying a home, right? So you can't underestimate the level of well-being you have when you know you live somewhere. You know, that's, I think I think if I come up with a campaign slogan, rip on, I'd talk about homes over houses, right? You're prioritizing a home over a house or, a, you know, a property. Um, if that makes sense to you, I'm not sure if that, if that was clear enough, but it's not a very good slogan if it isn't, but, you know, prioritizing people's homes over, over houses that, you know, are available for rent. Well, you have to start from somewhere. If it works, I think you're nearly there. So you have to start with the slogan. Now, the next question is how that slogan manifests itself into practicality. So Devon, thank you for that. Um, let me get Amy Taylor desk advisor into the conversation to explore how being homeless impacts rebuilding someone's life. Um, so Amy, based on what you've heard from Devon, what are your initial thoughts? My initial thoughts are that local authorities are on their knees at the moment. Um, the structure is crumbling and that's um, a lot to do with the budgets that are set by national government for local government that is not enough so being squeezed every year year in year out and with the crisis facing people um, in homelessness at the moment councils are having to spend so much money on temporary accommodation B&Bs hostels uh, trying to rehouse people even just you know temporarily and there's no budget for that so this is reducing councils the the ability they have to manage their services to deal with the levels of homelessness around them it's just crippling them so it's sort of all well and good um to think that you know the the autumn statement wasn't that bad but I I thought it was terrible I, I I thought okay they're unfreezing LHA local housing allowance for the first time in three years but we are talking about rent being paid at the lowest 30th percentile so we're not talking about market rents now because the rents are you know have, have gone into the stratosphere in the last few years it's it's just unaffordable for people to get on that very first rung of the ladder whether it be renting or buying so i i didn't like anything that uh, jeremy hunt had to say about people on sickness benefits um and disability benefits it feels like the most vulnerable people are being attacked and for me if you're homeless you are the most vulnerable you are ever going to be. You may have debts, you may have addiction, you may have health problems, physical and mental. And recovering from that is really difficult when we essentially do not have a safety net anymore. So not to rattle on too much, but absolutely terrible government policies in relation to things like treatment of people seeking asylum, basically evicting them from hotels, making them instantly homeless. That's not helping. Um, 
the fact that universal credit, unfortunately, although the idea is a good one in as much as you're putting all of these benefits together and making it simpler, unfortunately, it's now much easier to punish people. So sanctions, you know, sanction big chunks of somebody's benefit if they don't turn up for an appointment at the job centre or whatever. It's leaving people without enough money to pay the shortfalls in their rent, shortfalls in their mortgage. It's increasing the likelihood that they're going to fail. So so that's the initial thoughts. <laughs> I mean, you've worked in the debt advice sector for many, many years, Amy, and you've also served a variety of communities. From what you've seen and heard, what are the main causes of people getting or being homeless? Is it just not enough money or is there anything else going on? Well, as I say, there's there's a number of different things going on at the same time. So, number one, there's not enough housing and With the change that came in um, that reduces people's housing allowance for having a a spare bedroom, for instance, there's now a shortfall. So people need to downsize, but they haven't got the homes to go to. Those those smaller properties, single bedroom, two bedrooms, they're not available. So there is just a jam in the system. People can't downsize but they can't afford where they live. And eventually, you know, and this, whether this be uh, social housing or private housing, eventually action gets taken. You know, they have rent arrears, they are then evicted. And where do they go then? And as I said to you, you know, there's, there's hotels being emptied of people who are being processed, who've sought asylum, and once they're processed, they're being thrown out onto the street, literally. So, you know, what do you do do in that situation? Not only are you in a, a a new country that you're not familiar with the systems and maybe can't even speak the language, but you're now homeless. We've got women who are fleeing abuse, fleeing abuse at home, and you know, you'd think that if you go into a shelter, maybe that's free, but it isn't. You know, they, you have to then pay uh, for that as well. So the temporary accommodation is some of the most expensive accommodation, actually. And it's not good accommodation. It's nothing you would aspire to. So for me, I'm seeing a system that's really broken And even though we've got some ability to make discretionary payments, it's just not enough. Um, There's not enough money there to get people back on their feet. Speaking of people and people getting back on their feet, if you are carrying debts with you, how those debts will impact you moving forward and getting your new home. And if you do, can you sustain your new home? What actually happens to debts? So usually in in debt advice, we talk about priorities, you know, paying your priority debts. And the, the number one is always housing, be it your mortgage or be it your rent. You know, you try to pay your rent. And then work your way down, gas and electric, council tax, food, you know, and the things that you need to to buy each and every week or month. Um, 
So if you are made homeless and you have non-priority debt, because at the stage that you've lost your home, all of your debt is non-priority because the worst has happened to you. Nothing can be done. You know, they, you're not going to go to prison. They can't take your house off you because they already have. Uh, can't switch off your gas and electric because you don't have any anymore. So if you're street homeless or in temporary accommodation, all of your debt will sit there and potentially wait until you are back in a position where perhaps you're earning again or you've managed to find social housing, something like that. And then I guess it will restart. However, if you've changed address, it may take them some time to catch up with you. Now, we know many private landlords or their agents will do a credit check. Now, how would having a bad credit due to non-payment of your debts would impact you actually, you know, going back home or getting a home in the first place? It's going to be a huge problem for you. If you have a bad credit file, you know, a poor credit score, lots of debts, maybe county court judgments on there, then you are really going to struggle to rent from a private landlord and a mortgage is almost certainly not going to happen. You know, debts will sit on a credit file for six years from the point where you receive the default or the county court judgment. So it's going to be very, very difficult to pass credit checks to get yourself in private rent or even if you're thinking about buying a house, if you're in that position. If you are looking for social housing, not so much a problem unless, of course, you have rent arrears from a former social housing tenancy, whereupon these can be used to, I guess, blacklist you. So some housing associations will say that unless your former tenancy arrears are below £500 and they're not actually willing to really house you, it's difficult to get around that. Normally, uh, social landlords want to see that you are able to pay off the arrears, even if it's about making an arrangement to start paying those arrears off. Or if you can look at debt solutions, you know, if you see a debt, uh, debt advisor, they may be able to uh, talk you through something like a debt relief order to get those uh, debts written off so that you can start again. But it's certainly not easy once you're in that position presuming that you haven't got a lot of money to be able to get back in back into housing. Thank you, Amy. Um, Debt Talk did invite a Minister for Housing and, and Communities to get a fair balance of discussion on this podcast. Uh, I'm still waiting for the response, really, so let's see where things go. But for those who are listening to Debt Talk at podcast and want to share your experience or want to hear a subject of your choice, you can get in touch with me, ripon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com or on Twitter, yourdoctordebt. Let me go back to um, Devon and uh, Amy, who are to provide Debt Talk listeners with top tips uh, for those who are thinking of approaching, um, I suppose, local authorities or trying to come out of homelessness. Let me start with Devin Kalani. Yeah, I think it's worth, Ripon, just, just thinking a bit about who listens to 
this podcast, right? So if it's you know, people who are in debt, which are, you know, I'd probably give some slightly different advice. I'm assuming it's more kind of debt manager, debt professionals. Um, and in that situation, I'll kind of highlight a couple of things that we're doing that hopefully is making a difference. And it's all about getting to people as early as possible before that debt position spirals into something that becomes harder to engage them on, harder to get out of, um, yeah, more, more stressful for everyone concerned, particularly the, the the person in debt who you're trying to help, but with with knock-on consequences for the for the creditors too. So um I'll highlight two things that we're that we're doing at the moment. So one is working an awful lot to identify people who are struggling with debt early. So we work with local authorities across the UK identifying people who are struggling with council tax arrears, who may be in the private rented sector, maybe in social housing. Um, we can loop in, you know, um, if it's council homes, we can loop in those arrears as well to kind of combine debts. Um, but generally treating this being in debt as a, as an early indicator of financial difficulty elsewhere, you know, like, you know, a symptom of, of wider debt. Um, and well, at the same time, you know, knowing who's in debt doesn't necessarily let you help them but proactively identifying for those people if they're missing out on benefits or other support. So if they're struggling financially, um, if you can lower their water bill, lower their energy bill, um, help them access council tax support, help them access pension credit or universal credit, um, or many other types of benefits and support, you can make a real difference. Um, our goal is to get people out of that cash shortfall, negative budget situation. Um, and help them build financial resilience, really. So, so that's one thing: is use your data to identify people who are struggling, um, and help them access support they may be missing out on. I think the second top tip I'd give is, you know, people sometimes come to they don't always come to one partner for debt. You don't know where they're going to turn when they first struggle and ask for help. So we're trying to embed that help in as many places as possible. So more recently, we've been working with water companies because often that's one of the first debts that can go unpaid because they're not able to cut off your water bill. Uh, we're working with energy companies too, because because energy companies you start to struggle with. And we've been able to integrate as part of the social tariff assessment. They're not just being assessed for the social tariff with their water company. They're being assessed for the whole range of benefits at the same time. So the support they're getting from their water company, they're getting the wider set of support as well um, and hopefully accessing more income than they otherwise would. That means that they're far less likely to get into water debt in the future, um, but it also means they're less likely to get into other types of debt or more likely to get out of other types of debt if they're already in it, you know, if you're helping them access energy support or council tax support. So those are two things we're doing, you know, using data to proactively identify people early um, and embed that support in, in, into as many places uh, as possible. Finally, uh, from Amy, Amy Taylor. I think the first thing is just get help. Go to your council, go to your local law centre, go to your local citizen's advice, ask for any and all help available. See if there's anything under, under the household support fund that you can apply for. So I know locally we are receiving many applications to our household support fund for from people who are homeless for all kinds of things clothing so that you can stay as warm as you possibly can over the winter um, food obviously just ask for help because help is there help and advice is there don't feel ashamed about asking for it 
because we want to help you. And my second tip, and it's a little bit political, is do us all a favour. Don't vote Tory at the next election. Maybe we'll get a chance of reconstructing whatever uh, strands are left of the safety net and start looking after people again. Thank you, Amy. Just to recap, I did invite Minister for uh, Housing and Communities to uh, take part in order to make sure that the discussion is well balanced. But of course, I still would like to thank my panel members for giving their precious time to speak on debt, housing and homelessness. My next podcast is going to be on gambling and debt. Thank you for listening to Debt Talk podcast with me as your host, Ripon Ray.